everyone. This is Margaret coming to you at the beginning of this podcast with a correction to an earlier version that was shared um, on SoundCloud and iTunes. I just wanted to let you know that upon listening to it after publishing this podcast, I realized that I accidentally and disrespectfully mixed up the names of Renita Weems and Dolores Williams. Dolores Williams is the author of the book Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Womanist God Talk, which I reference at some point uh, in the podcast midway through when talking about the story of Sarah and Hagar. Renita Weems is also a, a black woman scholar, a womanist scholar of the Hebrew Bible who did seminal, fantastic work uh, in the first generation of womanist theology, but she is not Dolores Williams. And to equate them and to um, mix them up is a disrespect to both of them. So this has been corrected in this version of the recording, but we just want to let anyone know who listened to it earlier. I apologize for this error, and I want to let you know that you can purchase Dr. Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, directly from Uncle Bobby's Coffee Shop here in Philadelphia, which is a Black-owned coffee shop in Germantown. And I'll be linking the link to purchase the book in the transcript. Thank you so much. everyone. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. This is a podcast where we explore what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we're living today and which have been created by white supremacist violence for 400 years in the United States here on Turtle Island. What Do our sacred stories, specifically for this podcast, Christian sacred stories, have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance? What do they have to teach us about showing up in liberation struggles? What do they have to teach us about any of these things in the time of a global pandemic and now of uprising, in the time of righteous rebellion against police brutality and white supremacy? Who are we meant to be to each other? The theme song that you hear throughout the podcast is a recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement. It's called, We Are Building Up a New World. This recording is from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December, 2014. That practice was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are so grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. My name is Margaret Ernst. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm a white, queer Christian minister currently based on Lenape land in what is now called Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is a podcast designed with white listeners like me in mind. It is, of course, for anyone and everyone to listen to, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those from diverse faith traditions. 
but we also acknowledge that white folks have extra work to do, and especially Christian white folks. That is our responsibility, to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy that we are complicit with. So this podcast is about using Christian religious texts to help us in the work of resisting whiteness. And it means that we also examine those texts from the perspective of how do we resist violence within the text itself. ...about the lectionary text for this week from the Hebrew Bible. God's peace is not white calm. God's peace is not white calm. lectionary text is from Jeremiah 28 verses 5 through 9. It's a small passage in the larger context of Jeremiah and I'll read it and then unpack a little bit of where this text falls in the narrative and what we know about the Jeremiah tradition and the world it speaks into. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words that you have prophesied and bring back to this place from Babylon the, the vessels of the house of the Lord and all of the exiles. But listen now to this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all of the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes true, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. This is kind of a strange excerpt from the story of Jeremiah's confrontation with the prophet Hananiah. And I admit that I don't know much about why it was why it shows up in the lectionary. There is a reference also to prophets and true prophets um, in the Matthew text for this week from Matthew 10. And if you know more about uh, why, why Jeremiah shows up in, in this time in the lectionary cycle, I would love to hear about that. So you can comment on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages or contact us through Surge. But if you read the rest of uh, chapter 28 and the, and the passages preceding it, you'll know that these words from Jeremiah come in the context of Hananiah trying to make a claim, and not just a claim, but a demand that the people of Israel must resist the conquest and the oncoming violence and repression of the kingdom of Babylon upon them. Hananiah uses an image of 
a yoke. And actually, this is in reference. We see we have another reference to Jeremiah having a, a yoke around his around his neck, which is alluding to the yoke of oppression that an empire brings upon a people when they conquer them. And Hananiah has a vision of this yoke being broken. If we go back just a few lines earlier from where the lectionary starts this week, we hear this. That the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within these two years, I will bring back to this place all of the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. A few lines later, Hananiah says that the Lord will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And so here, when it picks up again in verse 5, we actually hear Jeremiah being sarcastic. He says, Amen. May it be so. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing their articles to the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. And so we have to understand that that tone of, of 5 and through 7 there is actually a tone of irony and of, of sarcasm. Because as he continues, he says, he accuses Hananiah of being a false prophet, which was a, a serious accusation. Uh, in his context. And he gives the people and, and the readers a way of understanding how to discern between false prophets and true prophets or prophets that come from God in their midst. He says, the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one who truly is sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. So this is sort of a tricky predicament in the time because ultimately the understanding of prophecy is that you can only tell a true prophet if what the prophet said has come true. So that doesn't really give people a lot to work with because they don't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future. But the thing about scripture and especially about the prophetic books is that they're speaking to an audience through many different valences of time and history the prophetic texts and traditions are often interpreting history through many generations later and speaking as if that they, they are prophets in the time. They're often drawing on prophetic traditions that were contemporary with the time in which they are set, but they're compiled and edited many generations later. So as I did some work to research and refresh my memory about the background of the Jeremiah texts, I remembered that it is likely written after Israel's return from exile after the Babylonian deportation in the 600s BC. It's important to also specify and remember that it wasn't that all of the people of Israel were deported to Babylon and then returned. It was actually just the elites. And the elites uh, and those who carried the scrolls and carried the treasures of the temple to Babylon and then later returned and later came into political rule again. That Those are the speakers here and those are the eyes through which the text was written and must be understood. 
And it is their agenda and perspective that is centered and is prioritized in this text. This was helpful for me to remember because honestly, in reading this, I really struggled with Jeremiah here. I came to this text feeling like Jeremiah is such a cop-out. I feel like he's smug and I feel very cynical about him. And I feel like he's telling this revisionist history that isn't aligned with what people's experience would have been prior to the exile. It feels like what he's saying here is aligned with the specific political and class interests of the returned exiles, the elites who were deported, who then later were trying to justify their, their rule back in the land that they had left. So I identify a lot more with Hananiah in this passage than Jeremiah, because the image that Hananiah uses of, of breaking the yoke of empire, that is the image, are the images that are at the heart of my faith. Isn't that the God I know, the God that breaks every chain and lets the captives free? Isn't that the story of the gospel, which I know as a Christian and I understand means that resistance is always worthwhile. God watches us always and will bring resurrection even when all seems lost. Like God raises Jesus from the cross after his movement was crushed by Rome. Well, that's not, frankly, Jeremiah's theology, and it would be a distortion of the reality of the text to try to impose that reading here. Like Dolores Williams talks about when she talks about the story of Hagar in the book Sisters of the Wilderness, this is a story of survival, not of liberation. Dolores Williams writes about the difficult story of Sarah and Hagar, and how Hagar, the person who is enslaved by Sarah, is forced to bear Abraham's child is abused by her and escapes into the wilderness. And then God comes down and tells her to go back, to go back to Sarah, to her abusive mistress. That was the text from last week's scripture from the Old Testament. I was in a Bible study with one of my colleagues at the church that I'm a pastor at, and she was honest with us. She said, she, as a, as a black woman reading the text, my, my colleague and friend raised up to us Renita Weems' perspective about this and said, hey, we can't lie here that God in this story, in the story of Hagar and Sarah, says to go back to an abusive situation. There's no reading over that. There's no spinning it to make it into a story or a theology of liberation. And I think that's an important lens to have here in this perspective of Jeremiah as well. We have to remember that Jeremiah is, is doing multiple things here. The, he's trying to retain the sovereignty of God, or the sovereignty of Yahweh specifically. And he's understanding the conquest of Israel by Babylon as God's will. So this is a, a theological lens that views the conquests of Israel, or of his people, as punishment for those people's sins and from turning away from Yahweh. Now this is a view that sees the violence of empire, or the, and really the political risings and fallings of kingdoms, as all under the workings of God for the benefit, ultimately, of God's people, 
and God's relationship with God's people. So this views Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as an instrument of God. This is historical sense-making that is often used to teach and to advise and to admonish the current generation that the text is speaking to, not necessarily. So it's prophesying to the current generation through the prophecy that he's preaching to the to the past generations that show up as characters in the texts. So as I wrap my head around this, I bridge into what we need to learn from this as white Christians resisting racism without trying to come out clear on taking Jeremiah's side in this complex ancient political situation or not. I actually don't really want to get into that beef with Jeremiah. But I do want us to pay attention to what this kind of perspective opens up for us and what kind of critical questions it can ask of us for our context as white folks trying to resist white supremacy here on Turtle Island today. One of the perspectives here is keeping the long view of history constantly in sight. Jeremiah here with his political and prophetic work is keeping the long view of history in sight. Now, of course, we know that the text itself comes from a time in which the people knew that ultimately they would be able to return and that there would be a time in which the treasures of the temple and the scrolls would be able to be brought back and be restored. So we, they have that information, but as a prophet, we there's a prophetic responsibility to keep the big picture in mind. This is important for white folks because we can get caught up in a lot of urgency and a lot of false sense of urgency especially when we've just become woken up to white supremacy or the reality of racism in America. There are a lot of people waking up right now to that and becoming activated in new ways or in deepened ways or recommitting themselves and their lives to racial justice. And that's incredible. It is such an incredible time to be alive and to be resisting, to be fighting for liberation right now. And I think it's important at the same time that those of us who are white here realize that our moment, this ripple in the time of history, is just a small moment in the context of generations of black struggle for freedom. And we have the honor and the duty to do our part as co-conspirators and accomplices with black colleagues and black comrades and brown friends and family members. But we have to keep the long view in perspective so that our actions can be rooted and grounded in knowing that we must be present to what is called of us in this particular time and also stay in it for the long haul so that we are doing so sustainably so, and also so that we're not letting our own false sense of urgency 
drive other drive our work or, or also uh, our guilt which can often be at the base of urgency i know that for me often when i've acted in urgent ways that are actually self-destructive or destructive to others it's often because underneath is a lot of anxiety and guilt and lack of security about myself. As I have come to do a lot of inner work and healing so that I don't work from that place as much, it's been particularly helpful to do a lot of deep learning about history, about ancestors in this work, and to also try to really think about the far off future. One time I wrote a letter to a future child, even though I'm not sure if I'll ever actually have biological children. I wrote to a future member of a generation trying to explain to this person what we did now and what we knew and how we tried to shape history and also maybe what they would need to know. So take the long view and it might give you surprising wisdom. Secondly, I think that this text helps us to reflect on the very real consequences of resistance and the dangers of resisting. It helps us ask questions about how really can we protect people from violence and reduce harm as much as possible. It's easy to call Jeremiah here a cop-out or to say he's just trying to accommodate empire or that he's giving in or that even that this is an imperial theology. And it may be, it may be. But at the same time, it forces me to ask the question of how I think we can really underestimate the brutality of what the state can do, particularly of what a state like the United States, which is, has the largest army in the world and has an enormous defense budget and has brutalized countries in different parts of our world and has even taken out governments and caused false coups and has bombed generations of children, we can underestimate what the consequences of resistance are, and especially we as people who are white, who have ra been raised with believing that police are here to protect and to serve us. Sometimes my politics can be a lot more radical than what my body actually knows. I think about how at times it has been white protesters in uprisings who have caused or, or escalated violence and or looting or the destruction of property in ways that end up causing police and the state to, to further criminalize and justify the destruction of black communities. Black lives are infinitely more important than property, and that is true. And yet, at the same time, this text is asking me questions about how, when those types of actions are taken by white folks, when it's not in alignment or in following the leadership of black people, particularly in that community, it means we're facing the violence of the empire with recklessness and perhaps some naivety. So again, 
I think that one perspective we can take from this text, from how Jeremiah takes this survival route and preaches a theology of telling people, hey, there is no way you're going to be able to resist Babylon. So you need to do what is going to preserve your lives as much as possible and go to Babylon, go into exile, so as to preserve the treasures of your of your past and of your heritage, and so to preserve a, a future for your people in the long view. This, again, is a theology of survival that causes us to ask those kinds of questions and to take the violence of the empire really seriously so that we act in the ways that are in the best interests and well-being of those who are already most targeted by the empire's harm. Third, this text shows us how it is a completely natural thing to ask hard questions about why oppression happens and to try to make sense of history that doesn't make sense. Jeremiah makes sense of history, along with many other prophets, in a way that sees God is completely powerful and completely in God's sovereignty, in control over the kingdoms of the world and the empires of the world. And so this hand of God that is present in those political affairs is really different from the way that many other people uh, and theologians and even other perspectives in the biblical text understand the hand of God. But this is one way of understanding of why, why oppression happens and why unthinkable atrocities happen to people who are already oppressed and hurting. Asking ourselves what kind of sense we are making, what does it say about God? What does it say about people? And what does it say about what we are called to do is really essential, no matter what theological perspective we are taking and no no matter what we believe about God's power. And finally, this is the area that I want to dive more deeply into with you. This text asks us, through Jeremiah's eyes, to get to know how we will know when true peace has arrived. Let's say that again. This text asks us to try to get to know how we will know when true peace has arrived. In other words, what is peace? And how will we know that it's here? Jeremiah warns the people against false prophets and claims that Hananiah is a false prophet by saying that the prophet who prophesies peace will only be known as a true prophet sent by God if that prophet's prediction comes true. Now, we know that Hananiah's prediction does not come true because in the next few lines we find out that Hananiah himself dies, which Jeremiah prophesies. 
and that Hananiah's prophecy about Israel successfully resisting Babylon and resisting needing to be exiled also doesn't come true. The reality is that Israel gets subjected again, just like it had been by Egypt, and as it will be again by Rome in Jesus' time. And so Jeremiah tells us to beware of false prophets who preach and prophesy that there will be peace when actually there is no peace. And he asks us to discern the truth of prophecy by being able to tell when peace has come. That's a tall order. And it makes me ask about whether we even really know what peace feels like. There are biblical traditions of what peace means, and the Hebrew word used here in this text is shalom. This is a word deeply important in the Bible and in Judaism. It's even known as one of the sacred names of God. Cornelius Plantinga, a theologian, tells us that shalom is the webbing together of God and humans and all of creation in justice, in fulfillment, and delight. I love that definition. He says that shalom is called peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or just a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, planting it right, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator, opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom the creator delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Cornelius Plantinga is a theologian from Calvin University, and so I don't know if he is in conversation or any kind of dialectical relationship with Adrian Marie Brown's work, Pleasure Activism. But when I read this idea about shalom and, and what it means in the Bible and what it means even here in Jeremiah, I can't help but notice those words delight, wholeness, flourishing, joyful wonder, and this is so much more than the way that I was grown up to know about peace. I thought of peace as just kind of a calm, kind of a lack of things happening. I thought of peace as quiet. Those are words that often go together, peace and quiet. I remember adults saying things like, hey kids, quiet down so I can have some peace and quiet. I was not raised to think about peace as wholeness or completion. And I was definitely not raised to think about peace as having any relationship with justice. But I later learned from the Bible that peace has everything to do with justice. And actually, in the tradition of the Bible, you can't have peace without justice. So when, as in the streets, we raise up cries saying, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. It's not just a threat. It's saying without justice, 
we can't actually have true peace. It just doesn't work that way. I was raised to believe that there were two states of the human condition or of the world's affairs. There is peace and war. And war is a war between nations and peace is when nations are not warring. But the reality is that the question of peace interwoven with the question of justice means that there's a much finer gradient and a much more complex spectrum of what it means to create shalom. The true peace of justice, just peace, actually feels like an unpeace to oppressors. The true peace of justice feels like disruption to oppressors. There was a time in Jesus's life in the period of his raising and upbringing that was called the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. And this was basically the public propaganda campaign that Rome used to have as part of its self-image and its national and or imperial story to say that the world was better off and the people said it conquered were better off under Roman rule. The Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, was achieved by way of oppression, of internal rebellion, and the conquests of neighbors. Jesus was actually crucified in the name of the Pax Romana. Crucifixion, the tool of the cross, was the favorite tool of the Roman Empire during this time to punish those who were a threat to it. The cross was used as a tool of sustaining and retaining Roman peace. In the situation of American racism, white peace and calm, white law and order is destructive to brown and black lives. White peace is white flight to segregated neighborhoods and suburbs where resources get disproportionately distributed to white schools and white community projects and stripped and taken out of black and brown neighborhoods. White peace looks like white people calling the police on black people just for being present or for playing music or for having a party or for bird watching. White peace looks like leaders of white organizations and churches asking people of color who dissent to leave when they speak truth about racism. White peace is a distortion of justice and of God's will. So it would behoove us to be on the lookout for false prophets who call for white peace. We should look out for false prophets who call for peace without justice. And at the same time, we must keep in mind that true peace 
true shalom may actually feel like unpeace to those of us who are used to the status quo of white domination and power. Justice and true peace will feel unsettling to the status quo that we accept as normal and that our bodies and minds are acclimated to. Transformation is uncomfortable. The reality is that justice and peace is actually uncomfortable. Peace is not the same as calm. Peace is not the same as white people being calm. In fact, it's going to take a lot more white people getting out of states of calm and into states of righteous outrage and fury at racism and channeling that anger into sustained forms of action to enable us to get to a state where we have enough co-conspirators with black people who are leading this movement in this moment to create real change and justice and repair and abolition and reparations. Resma Menachem writes in his book about somatic history and trauma, my grandmother's hands, about how we must tolerate the discomfort of transformation. And this toleration of discomfort of transformation means that we need to carefully observe ourselves, to slow ourselves down, and to settle our bodies. He talks in his book about using five body anchors to create more room in your nervous system for race-related distress, or really, that that's just means racism, that comes from internalized white supremacy. You have to create more room in your nervous system to tolerate the discomfort that comes up when the status quo of white supremacy is challenged. And we are people who are swimming in white supremacist programming from our youngest ages. So of course, when we are challenged, or when we see systems and structures challenged, of course it will feel disruptive. And we must learn to get uncomfortable. So how will we know when there is true peace? How will you know when there is true peace? And how will you be able to discern between calls for a false peace and a false oppressive order from calls for justice and righteousness, as the Bible calls us into. I invite you to reflect on that with your body and your full spirit and your mind throughout this week. Ask yourself, what did you learn about peace growing up? What comes up when you hear that word? What images arise? What songs? What phrases? What memories come up when you think about peace? And what are you now learning through your motion and movement for racial justice or what, what peace might look like? And then imagine, really, really settle into and lean into an imagination of what a peace that you can't even comprehend right now might look like and feel like. What is the true peace of justice, of liberation, 
What will that feel like in generations to come? What will it smell like? What will it look like? What will it taste like? What will be the reverberations that our children and our children's children will be able to experience that we can't even imagine now? Lean into that joyful wonder as an exercise of teaching yourself how to discern about what true peace is. For an action this week, I invite you to learn more about what it means to defund the police and to commit to talking to at least three white people in your life about it. Defunding the police has become a major demand of this current political moment in the, in the movement for black lives across the country. And there has begun to be articles and a lot of pundits talking about what it means, but I want to encourage you to go straight to the Movement for Black Lives website, m4bl.org, slash defund the police. There are hyphens between defund the and police to get there, and we will make sure to put the link in the podcast notes as well. There is a document there with the values and vision behind the platform to defend the police with talking points, even with a whole section on tough questions and answers. So there is a ton of resources there for you to learn and to dive into to learn what it really means and what it could look like to live in a world where we have enough peace and justice that police are not necessary. Imagine that. And in my invitation to you to speak with other white people about this, be strategic in those conversations. Be strategic about choosing someone who you think might have influence over others. Maybe someone in your congregation or someone who is a teacher or a community leader or has the capacity to be a leader, someone that you believe in. And together, work out what your questions are. Ask the questions that you feel embarrassed to ask. Don't feel like you have to say the right thing. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. Really dive in. And then take an action. You could do this together or on your own. Take an action towards defunding the police. There are so many ways to do that right now. It might be through street protests in your town or city that you join or even organize yourself in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives. It might be by joining a phone bank to call for your town or city to divest from policing and to put money into community services and schools and libraries and arts and culture and everything that we need for true flourishing and wholeness. You can go to Serge's website to get linked up to a specific chapter in your area to find out what's going on locally and ways that you can take action.
Money also always helps. So giving to a local Black-led organization or the National Movement for Black Lives is an awesome way to continue to support this moment for the long haul. And we have a specific fundraising partnership for th this week with Soul Force, our friends who do powerful work against white Christian supremacy and against the weaponization of religion as a tool of domination. I think that, especially with the complexity of this week's Jeremiah texts, I continue to be reminded about how important Soul Force's work is against spiritual violence and against images and ideas about God that may not serve us well. Soul Force has done incredible work to unpack the passages of scripture that are used against queer and trans people here on Turtle Island and across the global south through, col through colonization and missions. Soul Force has resisted that history of colonization by offering decolonial and decolonized frameworks and giving us so many tools and resources for spiritually resisting violence. So I encourage you to look them up and to also donate directly to Soul Force by using the link that we'll share in the transcript notes. Love and liberation to you and to everyone that you love. Peace to you. Shalom to you, justice to you, and power. May God wrap you this week in her delightful embrace as you live into the world and take action to create the world that future generations will be proud of us for creating. Yeah.